So let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that uh, the gospel is such a solid rock foundation that upholds us in every vicissitude of life, in all the changes of life, all the things that threaten us. Thank you for the way we started our service today, Lord, reminding ourselves that we are more than conquerors. Even death does not separate us from the love of Christ. We thank you that there is the joy of knowing we're citizens of heaven and this earth. We thank you, Lord, that your grace is enough. All these things, Lord, are certainly true. So I just pray for your grace for me, Lord. I feel in many ways very weak. In other ways, Lord, I feel strengthened because of the glories of the gospel. And in many things I have to be thankful for in the midst of sorrowing. So, Lord, I pray that you would bless the hearts of your people here with what I've been blessed with to think about and meditate on this week as we rehearse once again the wonders of your gospel. I pray for your help in the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. I felt led this week to build upon what we celebrated last week, and that was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I would just start off by saying again that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not peripheral to the Christian faith. It is an essential element of the biblical gospel. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, all of us remain in our sins. This morning, I want us to think through the logical relationship between Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the complete forgiveness of the sins of everyone who is joined to Christ by faith. So turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, verse 19. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is emphasizing this idea of showing that God's work of salvation has always been consistent. It's always been by faith. It's not by doing what the law says. So he goes back to Abraham and he says, Abraham, who lived before the law was given, he himself believed and he received, in a sense, salvation by faith. So let me pick up in verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, Abraham contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. And yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification, and therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. And what I want us to focus on this morning, by God's grace, 
uh, is to draw our attention to verses 23 to 25 of chapter 4. And there are three questions I'm hoping to answer. First question, what is the meaning or what's the definition of justification? Secondly, what is the basis of justification? In other words, what did God do to provide the grounds for a believer's justification? And lastly, what is the only means of enjoying these blessings of justification? First question, what does it mean? I wonder how many of you have ever been to see your physician or a physician, perhaps a specialist, and you've been examined by that specialist in his office, and next thing you know, he's trying now to explain to you what he's learned about your condition. And in the explanation, he says a lot of things, but you have no clue what in the world he's talking about. And oftentimes the reason why is because he is using a number of medical technical terms to describe exactly what is wrong with you, but you're not familiar with any of those terms. And so you often say, well, okay, doctor, what does that mean in simple English? Well, I want us to make sure that we don't just keep going in this sermon using theological terms that we have no idea what they mean. So I've provided in your notes there from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, very helpful book on many levels, uh, his definition, and I think a good summary of the idea of justification. It is, justification is a spontaneous act of God in which God thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And God declares us to be righteous in his sight. Now, there are many verses that would support this definition, and we can spend all morning looking at those, but I just want to give you a few samples of that. First of all would be Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, ju justification is a legal declaration of God that believers are just in his sight and therefore they are not facing his wrath. They are not facing further judgment and being punished for their sin. Romans chapter 8 is another at the conclusion of that chapter verses 33 and 34 teaches that those who are justified are not subject to any charge of guilt. He says in verse 33, who will bring any charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. And then if you look in chapter 4 of Romans, again, the justified person sins, they are completely forgiven. More than that, justification not only includes the forgiveness of sin, but those whom God justifies, he declares to have the merits of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Notice there in chapter 4, in that repeated phrase, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned, it was credited to him as righteousness. It's hard to believe, but in the courtroom of heaven, the judge of the universe declares a verdict whereby the penalty for our cosmic sin, our defiance of the God of all creation, that our cosmic sins... Therefore, all that penalty has been transferred to Jesus' account. And Jesus' righteousness has been transferred to our account. So that Paul in Philippians 
just marvels at this when he says in chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 9, he says, I don't have a righteousness of my own that's based on the law. That is, I've done all these things. But I have a righteousness that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In other words, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed by God to those who believe. And the guilt of those who believe is imputed to Christ. And so that points us to, of course, the verse that just summarizes this teaching so clearly in the Scriptures. If you're not familiar with this verse, you should have it underlined in your Bible. You should meditate on it. This is a summary of our whole sermon today. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the last verse of the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians. God made him, that is Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. There's the substitution that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, that is the verse that teaches so clearly this concept called imputation. Imputation. To reckon, to, to reckon to the account of another person, to put onto their account something that isn't theirs naturally. Uh, an example of this, again, imputation of example would be Paul writing to Philemon, who was a rather well-to-do gentleman who had many people under him who worked for him and who had employees, I guess you'd say, or slaves, one of whom was Onesimus. Onesimus had run away from this guy named Philemon. And Paul uh, crossed paths with him while in prison. Paul points him to Christ. This man uh, apparently had done some things wrong in leaving his his uh, slave owner, if you will, or his master. And so he's urging Onesimus go back now to Philemon. And so he's sending this letter with him to go back and make things right. And so Paul says this to him, to the, to the owner. He says, if Onesimus has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, then he uses this key word, charge that to my account. Imputation. That's what it means. Now, why is this so important? Oh, this is important for many, many reasons, but this is a very serious battleground in the 16th century during the Reformation because there's a big distinction between what the Reformers understood this concept of justification by imputation is so much different from the Roman Catholic view because the Reformers said justification is an instantaneous act of God by which he declares us righteous. Whereas the Catholic, the Roman Catholic view, is that it's a process of justification. In other words, the Catholic Church understands that justification is based on an infused righteousness, not imputed. I know I'm using big words, but it's an infused righteousness. That is, a righteousness that God actually puts into a person. A righteousness that changes that person internally, and it results in differing measures of justification. And that's what we call impartation. That is, God, they believe that God would give us something, make us different, and then we would then be granted a status before God because we've been changed. The problem is that this view leaves the Catholic adherents wondering whether or not they are in that state of grace because they're constantly trying to get back to make sure that things are right between them and God because they are in the state of justification. They have to try to make sure they go through the hoops through the various forms of the sacraments. 
And thus, virtually all Catholics are denied the experience of God's complete acceptance and favor in this life because they're always in need of somehow trying to resolve those issues. And that's why the Protestant theologians came up with this term, forensic justification. Okay, he throws another 25 cent word around. Here we go. Forensic. What in the world is that talking about? It just means it has to do with a legal procedure, a legal proceeding. Forensic. Here's a good explanation in your notes. I believe I have a quote here from John Murray in a very good book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. This is what Murray says. Regeneration is an act of God in us. That is, he quickens us and makes us alive, changes our heart. Justification is a judgment of God with respect to us. The distinction is like that of a distinction between an act of a surgeon and the act of a judge. The surgeon, when he removes an inward cancer, like for example, a tumor of some kind, he does something in us. That's not what a judge does. A judge gives a verdict regarding our judicial status. If we're innocent, he declares accordingly. The purity of the gospel is bound up with the recognition of this distinction. If justification is confused with regeneration or sanctification, then the door is opened for the perversion of the gospel at its center. So then, when I use the term justification, I am referring then to this judicial act. When God the judge declares that a believer is not guilty of the consequences of his or her sin, plus God does something else, he imputes or he puts onto our account all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which we do not deserve. That's why when reformers like Martin Luther and others, when they began to define and discover this truth in the page of Scripture, particularly in the book of Romans, they were filled to overflowing with indescribable joy. How many of you ever heard the book Pilgrim's Progress? Very good. I hope you are familiar with that. It's a classic, one of the most published books in all of history after the Bible. Written by John Bunyan. Listen to John Bunyan, who had struggled for quite a while with this understanding of being right with God. He knew that his sin was a problem between him and God. There were many portions of Scripture that he just couldn't get around them. He could never felt like he could be right with God. And so he says this, One day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Your righteousness, talking to himself, your righteousness is in heaven. And I thought I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. He didn't have a literal vision. He says, in my mind, I conceived of this. And there, I say, was my righteousness, so that wherever I was and whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness, for it was in front of him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. He went on to write, he says, I went home rejoicing for the love and grace of God. It turned his life completely around. It was a radically life-changing truth to him 
when he finally grasped this idea of imputation, of justification as an act of God. And this celebration is coupled, of course, with a passion now to defend the biblical gospel so that we want it to be known that it is a, indeed a forensic justification. It's not something that has to be done in me first to make me right with God. It is something God declares of me. He gives me something that never was mine, a, a righteousness that comes from him. Therefore, it is instantaneous, and therefore it is all of grace, and therefore it is the core of the gospel to be justified and declared right with God and to have Christ's righteousness imputed to sinners like you and me. Hallelujah. Praise God. We could easily go home and call it a day. But I'm telling you, my heart is burdened because I want to go through the next two points. Because the next question is, what is the basis of this justification? And really the question here is better asked, how can God who is holy and how can God who is just, how can God who is a just judge make this declaration? How can he say that we are not guilty when we are? How can God remain just and somehow give us what we don't deserve, and that is Christ's righteousness put on our account? How can he do that and still remain just? Well, the answer is found in verse 25 of Romans 4. And here again, we step back and we marvel at what God accomplished in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Because there we read, Jesus was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. You see, the basis of justification, so clear in this text, is not our good works. The basis of justification is not some imparted goodness that somehow we receive or some sort of righteousness that you're going to find in us that somehow is there naturally or somehow we've attained to. No, the only basis of justification is the redemptive work of Christ in his atoning death and his victorious resurrection from the dead. And that's why the text says that Jesus was delivered up to death. And the question we all should raise is delivered up by whom? Who delivered Jesus up to death? Was it Judas? Was it the Romans and Pilate and all those who conspired and carried out this dastardly deed? Was it the Jewish mob who had been crying out for him to be crucified, led by those hypocritical and corrupt leaders? Or was it every sinner like you and me who insisted that he be put to death instead of us? Well, on one level, we could say that all of those answers are correct. But the ultimate cause of Jesus' deliverance to death on the cross was God himself. Romans 8, look at it. Romans 8, verse 32. God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Isaiah 53, which we heard uh, very well 
expounded on uh, last Friday night with our brother Mark Harrigan. Isaiah 53 teaches the same thing. We read that he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And then in verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. It's very important you understand this and be clear in your minds that God did not deal with our transgressions by sweeping them under the rug. God did not just ignore them and just say, well, I'm just going to overlook that and just going to move on. But God saved his people from the just consequences of our transgressions by way of a substitute. And Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross was confirmed as being sufficient for our redemption because God did indeed raise him from the dead. And by raising Jesus from the dead, God signified that Jesus was no longer undergoing the condemnation for the sins he bore as a substitute. Because in the resurrection, God made it clear that the price had been fully paid. He paid in full for those sins, and therefore, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul makes that logical argument. We can return it around, basically, and say Jesus was raised from the dead. Therefore, we are no longer in our sins. We are not under condemnation. And that's why Charles Hodge has this very helpful insight. I think I've included that in your notes as well. I'm just going to go ahead and read what he said about Jesus being raised from the dead and how it gives us assurance of our justification. He writes, as it was necessary that the high priest under the old economy, that is, in the old covenant, should not only slay the sacrificed animal at the altar, but then that high priest was to carry the blood into the most holy place and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. So it was necessary not only that our great high priest, Jesus Christ, should suffer in the outer court, but that he should pass into the ultimate holy of holies, that is heaven, to present his righteousness before God for our justification. Both, therefore, as the evidence of the acceptance of his satisfaction on our behalf and as a necessary step to secure the application of the merits of his sacrifice, the resurrection of Christ was absolutely essential for our justification. See, God decided what would be an appropriate consequence of our sin, death. And then he determined to provide the only solution which permits us to be justified in a just way. God only provided the legitimate basis for justification in the atoning death of Christ. He also provided us assurance for our justification by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. The righteousness of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead makes it very clear that his death is a payment for our sins. It was more than adequate. It was more than adequate. Our high priest now, where is he? He's in heaven, forever living to make intercession for us. 
And the empty tomb of Jesus means that we can enjoy the full benefits of his atoning death, knowing that our sins are paid in full. What we lacked, we now can have by faith, a righteousness from God. That brings me to our third point. What is the only means to enjoying this justification? Or another way of asking it, how can I attain a right relationship with God? How can I have this standing before God being declared right with Him? And the, found, the answer is found throughout chapter 4. It's there a gazillion times here. If you just read the text, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. It will be counted, verse 24, to us who believe. The answer is by faith alone. By faith alone. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified, what? By being a good person? By being a person who stops doing certain things in your life? By being a person who starts attending church or uh, who becomes baptized or whatever? Who, who uh, starts a new chapter of life, a new, a new uh, way of living? No, you're having been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's relying and trusting on God alone. Because that expression of faith in God is a way of glorifying God. It acknowledges that we are helpless and God is sufficient. And therefore, God has us in mind. He had us in mind when he had Moses write those words back in Genesis. It was credited to Abraham as righteousness. God basically is saying to us, listen, I want you to know that faith in Christ will put you, all of us, all of God's people on good terms with God. If we will trust God, he will count our faith as righteousness. We will never again, we will never gain a righteousness from God by relying on our own acts of piety. We'll never gain a righteousness by anything else we might accomplish in this world. The only means to be justified is to extend the empty hands of faith. It is therefore the only means to be justified is to completely rely upon God, who in grace provided redemption to us through the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And therefore, we must renounce any trust or any confidence in our own good works or the lack of such. Instead, we must rely fully on the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. August. Augustus Top Lady wrote those famous words in the hymn, Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. Essentially, Christ becomes our everything. God says to us in the gospel, Listen, I have a righteousness for you, and you have no righteousness of your own. So rely completely on me and the redemption that Christ has accomplished for you. If you trust me, I will impute to you the righteousness of Jesus, and you will enjoy terms of peace and wholeness and restoration and reconciliation with me as your Savior, Redeemer, and Lord. Unfortunately, some of us keep thinking that we need to do more to be right with God. Or others of us think 
that we cannot enjoy God because we're not doing enough. Or we've done some things we can't seem to let go of from our past. And the call today is for everyone here today is to believe and put your faith, put your trust in Christ and Him alone. One thing about my mother, she was always a person who is quite stylish. We went through and did a bunch of pictures recently of her when we had her eight, uh, 90th birthday gathering. And as we went back to the, man, she was always dressed to the T in so many different occasions. And yes, she had closets full of clothes, which we kept trying to tell her, Mom, you're moving into a senior complex here. You don't need all these clothes. She wouldn't part with them. But looking back on that, I say with a sense of sadness, and she was always watching what everyone else wore because she would say, oh, I like what you're wearing today. And I'm like, don't tell me you like or don't like what I'm wearing today because I'm wearing what I'm wearing not to impress you. But anyway, that's just me. So if you tell me I look nice today, I may not be real thrilled to hear that. That's probably wise because I keep hearing that in my back of my head. What I'm saying to you is, though, listen, I think fundamentally, and I'm not trying to, I just want you to know that my mother, I think, fundamentally struggled to feel as though she was accepted by other people. I think she was deeply insecure about how she appeared to other people. And she strove very hard to always look nice, and she did. But I assure you right now, <laughs> my mother is celebrating the fact that she's clothed with Christ's righteousness, and she doesn't have to impress anybody because Christ has done it all. And I want to conclude this thought with a quote here from the Gospel for Real Life, Jerry Bridges. Wow, he just nails this very, very helpful thought about practically, what does this have to do with you and me? He writes, Unfortunately, many believers do not live as if justification is a permanent abiding state. We somehow have divorced our hope of eternal life in heaven from our relationship with God today. We think as if we will put on Christ's robe of righteousness the day we die. Meanwhile, in this life, we draw our sense of God's acceptance from our most recent performance of Christian duties or our avoidance of certain sins. For example, I've had my quiet time, you know, every day of this week. Oh, no, I won't have my quiet time three days this week. He says, our robe of righteousness for daily living is not that which we have from Christ, unfortunately, for many of us, but it's one that we have stitched together by our own performance. He says, we do not live in the here and now as if we are righteous in the sight of God solely because we have the righteousness of Christ. So he says, we miss out on all that because we're trying to be better in order to feel as though we've been fully clothed and declared right by God through Christ. And here's this great quote. Again, Jerry Bridges, here it is in your notes. You're going to fill it in. He says, in our standing before God, we will never, this is in justification now, in our standing before God is justified, we will never be more righteous, even in heaven, than we were the day we trusted Christ or that we are right now. That's the gospel. Praise be to God. Let's pray.
Father, your word says that we are to be preach the word in season and out of season. And Lord, I just thank you that it was your will for me today to have these thoughts in my mind, to have them in my heart, to be able to share them with all the folks who are here today. Because Lord, I know of no greater news than those of us who struggle with shame, those of us who struggle with acceptance, those of us who struggle to be good enough, to know that there's hope for us, to think back in the garden and to realize that you, the God of redeeming grace, were clothing those who were naked in shame, hiding, not able to, to, to be able to face anyone. Lord, I thank you that you've given us the clothing of Christ's righteousness, a wonderful gift by faith. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you took our sins on that cross. Not some of them, not most of them, but all of them. And thank you, Father, for giving us that wonderful, indescribably glorious robe of righteousness that belongs to Christ, and that we wear it now by faith. Lord, I pray, if there's anyone here this morning who have never embraced Christ by faith and said, Lord Jesus, thank you for doing that for me. Thank you for this exchange that you make that you give instantaneously a standing before you, which we are righteous because of Christ. Lord, I pray that they would transfer their trust today, stop trying to be good enough, and enjoy all that Christ is to them in the gospel. I thank you, Lord, that there is no greater truth than to celebrate the truth of who we are in Christ and the wonders of the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for helping me to Review those truths even this day and for the truth that all who are asleep in Christ have entered into fullness of what these truths mean. I give you praise in the name of Christ. Amen.